You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Fell, Kenway, Toves, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Samuel, and Adam. And a warm welcome to our newest patrons, Ethan, Jeremy, and Pat, our newest quartermaster, Birdsong, and our newest commodore, Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Have you ever worked hard on a project, at school or at work, and were very proud of it? You felt good about what you had done. And then, someone else, a friend of yours even, shows up with a project that just totally blows yours out of the water. Makes you look like an amateur. You can't really be mad at them, they just did a good job, and a better job than you. You want to be mad at them, maybe, but you admire what they created and hopefully will take a lesson from it to try and make something better next time. I mean, that's never happened to me. I'm spectacular in everything I ever do. However, on an entirely unrelated note, recently I've been re-listening to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast. Currently, he's been covering the Russian Revolution, which is fascinating. I recommend a listen but I decided to go back and listen to some older episodes. For example, I went back and listened to the first episode about the Central American revolutions. His introductory episode on that topic goes back to cover the entire history of the Spanish Empire in the New World in about 20 minutes. 20 minutes to cover something that took me, at best, three or four episodes and that I still don't feel I have covered thoroughly enough. I bring this up because today we're going to be doing a bit of a refresher. And I wish that I could have done nearly as concise and thorough a job as Mike Duncan. But I haven't. But I want to talk about this anyway because it's been so long since we've talked about any of these characters. And we could go back and start this story at a number of different times and places. However, I'm choosing to do so in 1671 with Henry Morgan and the Sack of Panama. Or rather, not the Sack of Panama itself, but the large number of pirates and buccaneers and privateers that were all brought together under that one flag. This is episode 138, Flag of Defiance. 
The other aspect of the raid on Panama that's important is the Brethren of the Coast. That's the coalition of mostly French and English buccaneers that operated out of Tortuga in Haiti and Port Royal, Jamaica. They fought together on many of their biggest raids, including Panama, and continued to do so in the war that almost immediately followed the sack of Panama, called the Franco-Dutch War. The Franco-Dutch War pitted the Dutch and the Spanish on one side against the French and the English on the other. And those pirates who were not already in the West Indies at the sack of Panama got their start during the Franco-Dutch War. We see so many times people who would go on to be French and English pirates working together to attack mostly the Spanish but occasionally the Dutch. Now the English and Dutch side of that conflict was much more centered in the East Indies. And some of our English characters got their start over there not as privateers, but as Royal Navy men, some of them serving directly under James Stewart. Back in the West Indies, though, most of the fighting was between privateers, and more than anything, that was between the French and the Spanish. Most of the fighting was centered around the island of Hispaniola. Now, there were a bunch of Englishmen involved in that conflict, but most of them did so under French colors with a French commission. However, the English would lose that war, the third Anglo-Dutch arm of the Franco-Dutch War. They surrendered, and then, a couple of years later, came back, this time having switched sides. They were now allied with the Dutch against the French. Now, none of that's really important, except for how that split affected the Brethren of the Coast. The French and English members of the Brethren of the Coast who had been so close for many years now, all of a sudden had a rift between them. Where once they had been brothers, now they were enemies. Now the Franco-Dutch conflict ended in the year 1678, and all of a sudden, the privateers were out of work. There was no raiding to be done, and that meant no profits. Many of the buccaneers turned to logwood poaching, or animal poaching, or just smuggling, which isn't great work or as profitable as privateering, but it's better than nothing. It's also better than, you know, getting a job. But then we reach the year 1680 and into 1681. Now, two major events took place in those two years that are going to impact our story today. The first of these events looks innocuous. It looks small, hardly worth mentioning. But... It involves a pirate who is going to be one of our key players moving forward. His name was Francois Groinet, and you may remember him, we've talked about him before, but for those who don't, I'm going to give a little background. Francois Groinet was a privateer in the Franco-Dutch War, but after the war ended, two years after the war ended, in the year 1681, Francois Groinet's ship was captured by the Spanish. His ship was commandeered, and Groinet and the rest of his crew were forced into labor on Spanish vessels. As far as we know, here in 1681, Groinet was a retired privateer, but not an active pirate. That makes the seizure of his vessel legally gray. It may have been legal in the eyes of the Spanish, but it was certainly illegal in the eyes of the French. Now, Groinet escaped his captivity, along with some of his men, and returned back to Tortuga. 
There he received a letter of marque from the governor, a man named Jacques Nebvu, Sieur de Ponquet, another name you may remember. Letters of marque, or letters of reprisal, were intended for situations exactly like this. If a Spanish commander took your vessel, you could steal as much as necessary to reclaim the worth of that vessel and its cargo from any Spanish commander. This was an old tradition, but in those post-war years it was a rare thing. You had to have a pretty strong legitimate claim to receive one, and that made Francois Groenet immediately a popular commander. Naturally, all of those who had escaped with Francois Groenet were members of his crew, but there were a lot of empty spaces there as well. And those spots were filled almost immediately by some of the best buccaneers that Tortuga had to offer. They were introduced to Francois Groenet by the godfather of French buccanier, Michel de Grumont. He supplied not only the men, but also a ship and the supplies necessary. This voyage of reprisal was quickly turning into the most talented, and well-supplied pirate raid in years. Within just a few months, the privateer Francois Groenet grew a reputation to be one of the finest raiders in all of the West Indies. He reclaimed the lost wealth in short order, taking both ships and treasure from the Spanish. But then, he continued his raiding. Once he was back out there, he couldn't just leave it behind. However, as David F. Marley writes in his book Pirates of the Americas, quote, While prowling off the island of Trinidad in January 1682, Groenet was intercepted by the flibuster commander Charles, Marquis de Montenon, who was under orders from the French crown to curb piratical activity and restore stolen property. End quote. European politics are at play here. England who had been allied to Spain and France and the Netherlands, all at different times during the war, had an inroad to all of those nations, and they were leading a coalition to keep the peace. The campaign to eradicate piracy, especially in the West Indies, was a major factor in that, and it was a sticking point for Spain. Both France and England were working hard to get rid of the pirates. Charles II of England would go on to pass that draconian anti-piracy writ in 1683, and Louis XIV of France was doing stuff like this. He had men specifically out to curb piracy, to arrest pirates and return any stolen property. Now, Francois Groenet was arrested, but he wasn't tried or executed. He was taken back to Tortuga, and he swore to stay on the right side of the law. In the meantime... In 1680 and into 1681, we have the first Pacific adventure. If you have ever listened to this show, you know what that is. The first Pacific adventure was a famous cruise, of which William Dampier and Lionel Wafer and Basil Ringrose all wrote accounts. The Admiral, John Coxon, took all of the crews overland and into the Pacific Ocean. However, when the majority of the fleet voted to attack Panama, John Coxon and his crew decided to return home. Eventually, Bartholomew Sharp would take command of the fleet, but he proved to be a poor replacement for John Coxon. Sharp led the fleet to disaster after disaster and was eventually abandoned by almost a third of his pirates. That group 
Those who abandoned Sharp included William Dampier, Lionel Wafer, Peter Harris, and the team of John Cook and Edward Davis. They, and a few dozen other men, headed back north and crossed into the Caribbean. Upon their return to the West Indies, those pirates had a bit of drama with the Tortuga Buccaneers. They were picked up on the north coast of Panama by a group of French pirates. This looked a lot like rescue, but those same pirates betrayed them. The French tried to sell them out to Governor Ponquet. However, Edward Davis led a bold escape in that and rescued John Cook and all the rest of the Englishmen. But that right there is an example of the rift we mentioned. In the end, though, William Dampier made it to Virginia, Cook and Davis made it over to the Mosquito Coast, and Lionel Wafer made it to North Africa. The rest of the fleet, still in the Pacific under Captain Sharp, that included Basil Ringrose, and they traveled south to round Cape Horn and eventually returned to England where they were arrested. They faced trial, but in the end they were set free. They were set free in large part because, well, that's an interesting question. Basil Ringrose had extensive documentation of his journey that proved of great interest to the crowns of both England and Scotland, who, we might remember, was the same guy at the time. Sharp, the one-time admiral, had plenty of experience navigating those coasts. Both the experience of Sharp and Ringrose and all of their men might just prove invaluable should the British decide to, oh, I don't know, capture a little Pacific territory from the Spanish. However, after they all returned home, piracy died down a bit. For another two years, it was quiet in the West Indies, until about 1683. And that brings us back to Francois Groenet. Groenet, after officially swearing to stay on the right side of the law, immediately broke that oath. He left Tortuga for St. Croix, where he took a license from the governor there to raid the Spanish. Now, Groenet had some brilliant successes in that venture, but he received word from Lauro de Graaf to return to Tortuga, not for punishment, but for an opportunity. De Graaf had a major raid planned in Venezuela and they were gathering all of their men and munitions and ships and supplies. Now, this wasn't a pirate raid. This was a military matter, and they had a military commander along for the ride. His name was Major Jean Le Goff. During the voyage, one of the buccaneers was insubordinate to the major, and Jean Le Goff had him whipped. This is incredibly stupid when dealing with a crew of buccaneers. Of course, it led to a mutiny. The whole operation fell apart barely after leaving port, and the pirates returned to Tortuga. Francois Groenet, especially, was a bit incensed. He had been doing well on his own, and he returned to Tortuga for this. However, that godfather of the Tortuga buccaneers, Michel de Gramont, informed him of a gathering. He told Groenet that a bunch of buccaneers would be arriving at Tortuga del Mar, an island off the coast of Venezuela, to go ahead and undertake that original invasion just without the army involved. But this wasn't the sort of thing that we could mention to the governor. Understand, this is the kind of meeting to keep secret. This was going to be an old-fashioned kind of raid, if you take my meaning. 
Now, this all happened in the summer of 1684, and that was a particularly busy time when it came to clandestine pirate meetings. They seemed to have been happening everywhere that summer, and all of them were pointed south. While Groinet was talking to Grammont, or just before, another meeting was taking place among pirates. Somewhere. We don't know where it took place exactly, as it was a secret meeting, but more than likely it was on the Mosquito Coast, even perhaps Abraham's Key. I feel fairly comfortable in making that assumption because of the flurry of activity that emanates from around that region in the English buccaneering community. Two pirates named John Eaton and Francis Townley were spotted separately in Port Royal, just having a few quiet drinks. Certainly not recruiting scalawags for any missions upcoming. The Port Royal authorities took note of this and realized that something might be up, but they had no evidence to arrest them at the time. Another ship, the pirate ship Revenge, under John Cook and Edward Davis, was spotted far from Port Royal, in New York City. Coincidentally, that's where Lionel Wafer happened to be and writing his book. We can be 100% absolutely certain that John Cook and Edward Davis did not take any bribes from the governor there because, as we all know, colonial governors were upstanding citizens. They would never pay pirates to undertake secret, illegal missions to regions that they themselves had a financial interest in. That's not the sort of thing governors did. Because governors had agents to do it for them. Shortly after leaving New York, with or without fat sacks of silver, the Revenge stopped by the Virginia colony to collect William Dampier and his twenty or so friends there. In England, there were less clandestine meetings taking place, although I suspect those two were spurred by more clandestine meetings. A prominent London trading firm was outfitting a ship called Signet for a voyage to the Southern Ocean, specifically to Peru, where Signet and her captain, the former buccaneer Charles Swan, were to trade with the Spanish. Now Swan met with both Bartholomew Sharp and Basil Ringrose to discuss the region with which they were so familiar. Ringrose, who was pretty much broke by 1683, he decided to go with Charles Swan to come along as his navigator. Now, as this summer of 1684 faded into fall, all of those plans were in motion. Captain John Eaton, aboard the 250-ton Nicholas, was sailing south around Brazil and toward the Cape, where he could enter the Pacific. Captain Charles Swan of the Signet was leaving England for Africa where he would cross the Atlantic, round the Cape, and enter the Pacific. John Cook and Edward Davis, sailing from North America, were taking a similar route. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. There in the region known as Guinea in Africa, John Cook and Edward Davis made a stop to capture a ship. They were pirates, it's what they do. But they found a particularly rich prize. A slave ship that would go on to become one of the most infamous ships in all of pirate mythology. The name of that ship was Bachelor's Delight. However, where that name comes from is up for debate. It might be a simple and innocuous name. These were free men on the high seas. They were roaming bachelors living the life that they chose. Bachelor's delight. Or the name might be insidious. That Dutch slave ship that they captured was already full of slaves. They were already in chains, and many of those slaves were women. Now, a few weeks later, the pirates did, we know, drop off all of the slaves near a maroon camp on the coast of South America. But some do believe that the women on board provided the entertainment during the Atlantic crossing, and thus they believe that is the origination of the name Bachelor's Delight. Now, I don't subscribe to that belief, but it is worth a mention nonetheless. The crew of Bachelor's Delight, though, is important to our story moving forward. Aside from John Cook and Edward Davis, there was William Dampier, of course, and we've talked about him and his activities after this cruise at length. But there are others that we need to mention. Ambrose Crowley, for example, who we will be talking more about in the future, and another crewman by the name of John Reed. Yes, the very same who we've talked about so much recently. After rounding Cape Horn, on their way to the Juan Fernandez Islands, Bachelor's Delight, Nicholas, and Signet all met up in the South Pacific. This fleet we might consider, say, the southern squadron of what would become the Second Pacific Adventure. Now, Signet's plans to trade in Peru were pretty quickly dashed when John Eaton sailed off to attack Spanish ships in the region. His raids alerted all of the Spaniards that there were pirates out there and made legitimate trade with the Spanish absolutely impossible. Without any income coming in, and with a pretty serious need for protection, Charles Swan agreed to join forces with Bachelor's Delight and the Nicholas. Meanwhile, to the north, back in the West Indies, Francois Groenet arrived at Tortuga del Mar, just off the coast of Venezuela. He had 190 Frenchmen with him, and somewhere in the realm of 60 or 70 Englishmen. 
Now, this was a large group of pirates, but they were all there for that super-secret meeting organized by Michel de Grammont. Let's return for a second to that rift between the French and the English. They weren't open enemies. They didn't blast each other out of the water on sight or anything like that. Despite even the betrayal of Cook and Davis by the French, they were still openly friendly. But they had a very serious rivalry there. Look at Groinet's fleet makeup here. There were a number of other captains under the commander. The French pirates Pierre Le Picard, Mathurin de Marte, and Jean Lescouillet were the three most prominent. Groinet, Picard, de Marte, and Lescouillet were all breakaways from Tortuga and the overbearing character of Lauro de Grave. That Dutchman and his lot were becoming more and more legitimate by the day. They were turning into good king's privateers, and these buccaneers wanted none of that. I should also mention one other crewman, a man named Ravno de Lusan. He's going to be keeping a journal which we will be using moving forward. That's a lot of French commanders and French pirates, but there were those Englishmen there as well. Peter Harris, the nephew of the Peter Harris from the first Pacific Adventure, and William and Knight were the two most prominent captains among them, but I also want to point out a regular crewman who was there named George Dew. That's a name you might want to remember. Think about the disparity in power there. There were a ton of French pirates and a few English pirates, and that disparity would only widen with the arrival of Michel de Grammont and all of his Frenchmen. This was by design. The English pirates were welcome, certainly, more guns, more hands, but this was a French fleet under French command. Unfortunately, Michel de Grammont failed to appear. After waiting around for a few weeks, what turned out to be a few weeks too long, Francois Groinet made the decision to sail west from Tortuga del Mar to a place called the Golden Isle on the coast of Panama. It was, reportedly, the meeting place for a bunch of other pirates under the Englishman Francis Townley, who we last saw in Jamaica. Now, they were all English pirates. That would, unfortunately, shift the balance of power among the fleet, probably to become more or less equal, or even potentially to tip it over to English control. For Francois Groenet, that was less than ideal, but still better than sailing alone or... Worse yet, coming home empty-handed again. But when they arrived at the Golden Isle, Townley was already gone. He had taken his fleet and sailed for Darien. Groyne chose to follow Townley's fleet, which is risky. Following in the wake of another pirate, a pirate who was liable to make some mischief along the way, was dangerous. However, if Groyne moved quick, maybe they could catch him up. In the meantime... The southern Pacific contingent, Signet and Nicholas and Bachelor's Delight, was currently operating in Peru. They made enough trouble that the governor at Lima sent out a fleet to hunt them down. So the pirates fled north to the captaincy general of Bogota, which was, by 1684, virtually an independent state. Again, they made enough trouble that the captaincy general sent out a fleet to hunt them down. The pirates fled west into what is essentially a no-man's land between the two viceroyalties. That no-man's land was situated between the audiencias of Panama and Bogota. 
And again, if you have ever listened to this show, you know about the country called Darien. It was swampy and mountainous and infested with alligators and mosquitoes, but it was dangerous to the Spanish more than any other reason because of the Guna people. They made Darien their home and used it to fight a guerrilla war against the Spanish on both sides. To further that war, the Guna often hosted pirates. Really, any enemies of Spain were welcome, but pirates were usually those who showed up. For example, when Francis Townley crossed the Isthmus, he was... For example, they played a major role in the first Pacific adventure. Just a few weeks earlier, when Francis Townley crossed the Isthmus, the Guna gave him guides and aid. And at just this moment, just about the time that the English were running from the fleet out of Bogota, Francois Groinet and his men were marching south, aided by the Guna. Now those French buccaneers arrived at the Gulf of San Miguel, which is an entrance into Panama Bay, and beyond that, into the Pacific Ocean. The Guna were kind enough to give them canoes, but that's all they had. They'd left all their ships on the other side of Panama. Now they undertook a series of canoe-bound raids against small Spanish vessels. Their most noteworthy capture was a half-galley, which was better than nothing, but beyond that all they had were a few fishing boats and the best of the Guna canoes. The Bachelor's Delight, under Cook and Davis, was sailing all alone. John Eaton had recently left their little flotilla, heading west, hoping to catch up with Francis Townley. Signet was sailing for Panama, hoping to beat John Eaton to the region so that he could trade before the other pirates started causing trouble. Revno de Luzon tells us that Groinet and Les Couillet stopped at an island out in the Bay of Panama. And then he writes, quote, Two leagues from whence they discerned a ship on fire. End quote. They went to that island to retreat from whatever was happening there. They would be a good place to hide from any Spaniards who were involved in whatever fighting was going on on the horizon. Under different circumstances, they would probably have sailed in to scoop up the spoils of two weary and wounded Spanish vessels. But all they had were canoes and fishing boats and that half-galley, and that just wasn't enough to take advantage of the situation. What they really needed was a bark or even a brigantine. If they were amazingly lucky, a frigate, but that was impossible. All three were impossible without a decent pirate ship or cannons to work with. A few leagues to the east, on the horizon from the Pearl Islands, a proper pirate ship that was brimming with cannons was capturing the Spanish frigate Santa Rosa. That was Bachelor's Delight involved in that fighting, and she captured that Spanish vessel. After the battle, the English pirates made the same decision as the French to head off to that secluded island chain. Luzon says, quote, By break of day we saw the English under sail. End quote. When they did eventually meet up, they had a lot to discuss. I do imagine it was a bit tense, taking into account that rift between the English and French. However, all of the pirates were willing to put any of that aside in favor of the enemy they all shared, the Spanish. And each of the two parties had something of use to offer to the other. The English had the recently captured ship Santa Rosa, 
a frigate that was in excellent condition, barring a little bit of damage from the recent battle, but that had guns and tools and vittles and everything else that the French buccaneers would need to become a real pirate terror in the Pacific. Honestly, it was probably the best ship that the English had, including Nicholas and Bachelor's Delight and Signet. The English might have taken it for their own. Had John Eaton still been around, they may have done so. But the Santa Rosa was a bit too large for just the crew of Bachelor's Delight. Beyond that, you know, they'd put a lot of work into Bachelor's Delight, making her a proper pirate vessel. And the Santa Rosa was just the right size to hold almost all the French buccaneers. So Cook and Davis handed Santa Rosa over to their friends with what I can only assume must have been a slight twinge of remorse. And then the French had their own gifts for their English friends. Francois Groinet had letters of mark, signed by Jacques Nepveu, that allowed the bearer of that letter of mark to engage in absolutely legal privateering against the Spanish. So what's more valuable here? when we consider that it was at this moment illegal for the English to even accept those letters of mark from a foreign prince, and take into account that Governor Jacques Nepveu had recently been fired and arrested and replaced, well, as a legal shield, those letters of mark were pretty flimsy. They wouldn't stop the English pirates from swinging at the end of a rope, be it an English or Spanish or French rope. Personally, I'd take the ship. And that's exactly what the French did. They climbed aboard their new ship, they gave her the once-over with their carpenters and gunners, and then they set about their business. First, they held an election, but that went as expected. Francois Groinet was installed as captain of Santa Rosa, with Jean Lascouillet, Pierre Le Picard, Pierre Blot, who we have not yet mentioned, and Mathurin de Marte serving as his officers. Revenez du Luson continued his journal-keeping. Much like Dampier has been, Lusanne is going to be a central character from here on out, because, more than any other reason, he was writing down his experiences. For example, shortly after setting out from Taboga, he tells us, quote, On the 25th of April, we took an advice boat going to Peru that was carrying packets from Madrid and letters from the Viceroy of Lima, wherein there was an account of how many men of war fireships, and merchantmen the fleet consisted of, and about what time the same might arrive at Panama. End quote. Which is to say, an account of a fleet that the pirates needed to avoid. According to Lusanne, the captain of that advice boat carried a chest of jewels on board, from Panama, bound to the Viceroy at Lima. Unfortunately, he had orders, should pirates arrive, to toss that overboard which he did. He even taunted the pirates about it. And then Luson tells us of putting the question to the captain, and then the ship's master. Now, he does neglect to mention the torture that was almost certainly involved, but it is implied. And isn't this just kind of wonderful? I love the account of Ravno de Luson. It's got everything I want. You know, Dampier just kind of has this habit of talking about Penguins and wind patterns, for all the world like he's just some erstwhile scientist, while his buddies are in the background sword-fighting and capturing ships, daring do's going on, and he says nothing about it. But Lusanne, he knows how to get to the good stuff. 
He writes, quote, On the 27th we departed with 500 men to go and take La Sepa, which is a small town seven leagues to the windward of Panama. About ten in the morning we discovered two pirogues bearing upon us. We presently sent out two of our best sailing canoes, manned with twenty men each to attack them. These quickly took us to be what we really were, i.e., freebooters, made no delay to save themselves upon one of the islands in the Bay of Panama. They got upon a rising ground, with their arms and as much ammunition as they could save, and fought stiffly against us, we marching under a flag of defiance. End quote. It's hard to say what Lusan means by flag of defiance here. First of all, it could be a mistranslation, and he could be talking about the flag of the enemy. If it was in fact a flag of defiance for the pirates, it could be the traditional French standard of a white cross on a blue field. Or it could be the gold fleur-de-lis on a blue field. Probably not that one, but it's possible. Or it could be the English red cross on a white field. All three, when doing battle against the Spanish, might have been seen as a flag of defiance. However, I choose to believe that in preparing Santa Rosa for her voyage, they prepared several Jolly Roger. Now, probably not the skull and crossbones here, not back in 1685, but a black flag would have signified death, or even a red flag that signified blood. Both would have been instantly recognizable to anyone as a pirate standard. Especially to the Spanish, though. The black flag would ring of Barbary pirates, like those under Barbarossa. And the red would remind them of the Sali rovers, also from North Africa, who flew the Sali Rouge. Whatever flag it was, under it the pirates defeated this small Spanish militia, took their boats, and burned them. I really wanted today's story to end where we left off with these pirates so many months ago. But unfortunately, we're going to end there today. There's too much still to cover. However, as I said, I really enjoy the way that Ravno de Lusan tells his story. Moving on, he's really going to get to the point and to the good stuff. Next time, we're going to follow these pirates through some of that good stuff under their flag of defiance, and then we're going to begin their journey home to the West Indies. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, and there are so many of you who have recently done so. Thank you, and thank you to everybody who has done so in the past. Everybody who has left us a rating or a review, that really brings in more listeners, which helps us out. And everybody who has recommended this show, and I've seen a bunch of you on Twitter recently, thanks to all of you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
born, the old captain has died. Let him live on in legend tonight.